0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Dalley. Our guest this week is Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Growing Matters. Growing Matters is an industry coalition sharing science-based information about the crucial role neonicotinoids play in how food is produced. Learn more at neonicfacts.org. AgriPulse open mic continues with Growth Energy CEO, Emily Score next. Neonicotinoids, or neonics, are a class of pesticides that are vital to agriculture and are cornerstones of modern integrated pest management. For more than 25 years, neonics have played an important role in sustaining communities and help ensure farmers are able to grow the food, fuel, and fiber we need. Not using Neonics would undermine the very practices that keep destructive pests in check and would negatively impact farmers, families, communities, and the environment. That is why Growing Matters, a coalition led by BASF Agricultural Solutions, Bayer, Mitsui Chemicals, Agro, Inc., Syngenta, and Valet USA, LLC, has launched NeonicFacts.org. To share science-based information about the crucial role Neonics play and how food is produced. To find out more about the important role Neonics play in North American agriculture, share the facts and learn the sources such as the EPA and Ag Informatics, visit NeonicsFacts.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The Growth Energy Executive Leadership Conference wrapped up last week in sunny Miami, Florida. While the industry faces certain regulatory and judicial headwinds, CEO Emily Score sees plenty of opportunity for the future of biofuels. Score says the tone of the meeting was that of optimism, and excitement
1: and It was really palpable the amount of enthusiasm around kind of the diversity of opportunities before us. We know we've got this, some of the very familiar political fights. We know we have to continue to prove our climate bona fides in a lot of the policy conversations, educating the administration, educating lawmakers. and then, when you look and have a commercial conversation, what's taking place in various paths to reduce the carbon intensity of ethanol, a lot of conversation around carbon capture and sequestration. A lot of conversation around the hard-to-electrify space, ethanol to diesel for long-haul trucking, Um, ethanol to jet fuel for sustainable aviation fuel. So, so much excitement, and I heard several people say that we are at an inflection point as an industry, and they're very excited to see where we can go forward.
0: Are you confident that your industry can verify the life cycle of ethanol and its contribution toward lower carbon and better atmosphere?
1: Absolutely. There's a second part to that question, though, because... I know that we can verify that. We've got science already. We're continuing to make sure that the most up-to-date science is available and visible. The second part is getting regulators to incorporate that into their modeling, into their policymaking. That's just going to take a much bigger lift because we're changing a modeling. We're changing attitudes. So it requires more conversation, more education. I think we can get there. We have to get there because at the end of the day, The climate, the conversation in Washington, it's all about climate and carbon. And if that's the measuring stick, all right, don't pick one technology over the other. Let's make sure that it's an apples-to-apples comparison, that we're looking at a complete data set of the full life cycle analysis of all of the potential pathways. And when you do that, we know that we can compete and we can win on carbon.
0: So if there's any word today that is probably more popular in the headlines, I would have said carbon before. But I would say today it's inflation and even some numbers coming last week, some of the highest inflation numbers we've seen toward consumers since the early 80s. Now gasoline prices are close to averaging 350 nationwide. That's a dollar more than where we were pre pandemic. How are these higher gasoline prices affecting your industry?
1: Well, how they affect our industry in that it makes gas prices and our fuel supply very top of mind for the administration. No politician wants to be at the helm when gas prices go up because consumers are incredibly sensitive. So the White House knows it's got to do something about gas prices. That's when we uh, do our job and say, well, you've got an opportunity with ethanol. The more ethanol you use in the in the fuel supply chain, you're extending the fuel supply, you can help. We can help bring the price down. Consumers can use a higher blend of ethanol. E15, you're going to save 5 to 10 cents per gallon at the pump. So the administration has an opportunity. We actually sent a letter to the White House last week uh, telling Mr. Biden, reminding him and his team of the available opportunity that, you know, there's, there's, there's something that you can do that can help every consumer, and that's embracing biofuels.
0: So the president said last week that he would, quote, work like the devil to get energy prices down, and he's talking about gasoline as a part of that. What are the investments or what are the points of deregulation that this administration could take that would allow opportunity for the renewable fuels industry?
1: Well, and the action would be deregulation. So um, in 2019, the EPA granted uh, year-round access to a fuel E15 blended with 15% ethanol. Uh, The oil industry sued EPA and won in court, taking that year-round access away, which means in about 75% of the fuel market around our nation, in the summertime, consumers aren't able to purchase a, a fuel that is cleaner, better for their engine, and better for their pocketbook. So EPA could take action, that would allow to kind of restore consumers' ability to have access to that fuel, which would not only contribute to their climate agenda, but it would help bring the price of fuel down for consumers.
0: So we're talking about the reed vapor pressure, and not only was that a regulatory decision, there was also litigation involved
1: here. That's right. So EPA uh, had a final rulemaking granting year-round access to E15. The oil industry sued. Uh, They won in court. Growth Energy actually filed a petition all the way to the Supreme Court to see if they would take this out and reconsider the district court's opinion? The Supreme Court said no, uh, which means, all right, EPA, the ball is back in your court. You granted this, this waiver to E15 in the past. There are other regulatory pathways that EPA can take. What we're really looking for is fuel parity, all right? Make sure that E10 and E15 are treated the same way from a regulatory perspective. Then the consumer has the choice. They've got options at the pump. And we've seen historically, when you look at fuel sales information, when consumers have the choice for E15, they choose it. Again, because it's better for the engine. It's higher octane. It's better for clean air because you're you're cleaning up the emissions. And really, most importantly for many consumers, it's that price point. You're saving money.
0: You've got crude oil prices that are bumping near $90 a barrel right now. You also have corn prices for the new crop at $6 a bushel. How are these two numbers conflicting for you, or how do they affect you?
1: Well, I mean, there is, if you look at kind of the price of ethanol, the price of of oil, and the the price of corn, certainly. But I think what's most important for consumers to understand is the number one factor in the cost of, of their gasoline is the price of oil. That is by far the biggest factor in the price. So when the price of a a barrel goes up for crude oil, that's when you're going to see it reflected directly at the gas pump.
0: So the administration announcing this past week $5 billion for the construction of EV charging stations, and then a second announcement is expected this summer. Is this administration picking winners?
1: Well, so they are certainly leaning in on on electric vehicles for the light duty fleet, uh, absolutely, and you look at that price point. Um, but there are some things, we've got some opportunities in terms of investment for biofuels as well. Included in the House version of the Build Back Better package, and we know that if passed, it will be something different, but included in that was a $1 billion investment in higher blend infrastructure for biofuels. That's a sizable investment. That would be the largest federal government investment in infrastructure for higher blends ever. And I do believe, as Congress is contemplating, where do we take Build Back Better next, if if there is going to be, and I believe there will be, a continued emphasis on kind of some climate component, I think there's a good chance that we'll be able to make sure that we've got some of that investment and infrastructure in there. There's also some good tax in- incentive opportunities in the current Build Back Better that speak to where we can go as an industry that incentivize our plants to, for, to continue to reduce their carbon intensity through carbon capture, the 45Q. We can expand that tax credit. There's a proposed clean fuel production tax credit. Uh, what's really nice about that is that is a, that is technology agnostic. There is, uh, because it's saying, all right, meet, meet this carbon performance, and they're using a very accurate modeling to be able to do that so there's some opportunities for us ahead i think their finger certainly is on the scale right now in terms of electrification but i think there are opportunities ahead and we just have to continue to show them and it takes a lot of education that we are the solution you're looking for because we can immediately reduce carbon intensity and and the carbon emissions in today's vehicles on the road today
0: but still from a dollars and cents standpoint $1 $1 billion is 20% of the $5 billion, less the second announcement that will be coming this summer.
1: That's true. And what's really important to know, though, is that for consumers to be able to use E15 year-round in their cars, we need some investment in infrastructure, but it's not. it doesn't require a massive overhaul of our entire infrastructure system in the U.S., So that gets back to what's most important that that we want kind of the policymakers to understand and the lawmakers to understand. You can do a modest investment, and we can give the consumer a cleaner burning fuel choice that doesn't require massive billions of dollars of investment in our hard infrastructure.
0: So what is the future of the RFS beyond 2022? Because this was to be a magic year where control was going to change.
1: Well, I think the future of the RFS should be fantastic. And certainly this administration has an opportunity to view the RFS not as a tool to manage corn oil politics, which is how it has traditionally been viewed and I think approached by multiple administrations, but the RFS is a weapon um, in their, their stated biggest fight, which is the fight against climate change. So it's been kind of untapped as a full carbon solution vehicle. We are still waiting for the final renewable volume obligations for 2021 and 2022. After that, the EPA comes out with a set. So that's where they look at a multi-year requirement for volumes 2023 and beyond. And so a big part of our conversation with the EPA is look at the current real data about – our environmental profile, our carbon climate benefits, and you can do that and we can actually blend more biofuels every year, both corn ethanol and advanced biofuels, and we can really power the RFS for the the administration to start chipping away at its climate agenda.
0: Is it frustrating to know that you are better for the environment, you offer a more inexpensive product, and or at least to this point haven't seen support from the green in- industry and so- and for those who want products that are better for the environment?
1: Well, certainly, I think as an industry, we, we want everybody to see what we see and what we know. Um, and having said that, we understand that we are engaging with an administration and a team that's still relatively new back in Washington so we've got to educate them we've got to bring them up to speed on the latest science to make sure that they see it they understand it we are not the ethanol of 10 years ago we aren't the ethanol of 5 years ago and so um a lot of that is it's it's not only educating the staff and the political level at the administration but making sure our congressional champions and their staff are fully up to speed as well so um it takes A lot of repetition and some patience, but we know that we've got the climate bona fides, and we know when this administration gets down to the business, when they're done setting the stake in the ground of where they want to go and their commitments, and it's, all right, how do we actually get there? The reality of that, okay, we've got to put one foot in front of the next, and we've got to get there, and we've got to show some reductions, I think that's when biofuels are really going to be able to emerge.
0: What's the conversation between Growth Energy and Administrator Regan? And how would you characterize the EPA's decisions as late on SREs?
1: So let me um, let me start with a decision um, on SREs, and it's a kind of a mixed bag, what, what EPA has proposed it really is. If you look at where they're going with a with 2022 proposal, that's restoring integrity to the RFS. All right? That's the highest proposed volume of total renewable fuel that we've seen. Uh, the EPA has proposed including 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol. They have proposed really cutting off that pipeline of small refinery exemptions that we saw just explode in the Trump administration. So that's fantastic to see. That's administering the RFS as it's intended. Uh, they're proposing to start restoring gallons, uh, 500 million in gallons that we won in litigation five years ago that were improperly waived in 2016. So all of those signs are very good indications. If 2022, if that proposal is final as proposed that's exactly what the RFS needs to be and we've said that as much to the administrator. what is unfortunate is that when you look at what the EPA has proposed for 2021 and 20 um, that's where they're just throwing too much of a bone to the oil industry and those are the, the proposed retroactive cuts to 2020 are unnecessary and we don't and we believe greatly exceed EPA's authority. so they're proposing to cut volumes that were finalized two years ago. There is no need for that. The market already adjusted for the impacts of COVID on the fuel supply chain. Uh, Because they have been so delayed in coming out with RVOs for 2021, the proposal is essentially what blending has actually been, which means you're missing out on the point of the RFS, which is to be a market-forcing mechanism to make sure we're blending more every year. So there are some things that are really good. There are some things that need to be fixed. A very important message right now is finalize it. Give the marketplace the certainty that it needs. That is always the conversation among the industry and investors. We've got to have those market signals. We've got to know as we're looking at CapEx what, what the opportunities are going to be in the years ahead.
0: And your relationship with the administrator?
1: So we've had good conversations with the administrator. Um, and I, you know, he's, he's been very consistent. In saying that, you know, he wants to make sure that the RFS becomes one that has a good foundation and becomes a vehicle for growth. And he's, he's talked about getting the RFS back on track. So good dialogue and good conversation. We always want to see that and we'll continue that. Um, and right now these are proposals. So we've got to see some finality and some closure and certainty, and that's really where we're focusing the conversation on the RFS.
0: Do you feel like the midterm election will play a role, either as a catalyst or, um, or, or slowing down decisions that would either come from the administration or before Congress?
1: Absolutely, and and the tension is going to work both ways. Okay, so there's there's many stakeholders are going to be expecting things out of their elected leaders, and we've got some very strong, important Midwest Democrats that want to be reelected. And the administration is going to want to see them reelected so that they can maintain their, their majority in the House. And so if you look at someone like an Angie Craig, Uh, or a Cindy of Minnesota or a Cindy Axney of Iowa, they've done fantastic work in terms of pressing the case for biofuels and championing us in every opportunity. And I know they're going to want to come back to their constituents with a hard victory on the RFS in particular. So I think the midterms are a good opportunity to say, okay, we've got to get some stuff across the finish line. And my hope is that EPA will act expeditiously and finalize these RVOs.
0: Well, 100 senators uh, in the upper chamber, 14 states that produce the majority of ethanol, and one certain champion in Iowa that you offered uh, uh, congratulations and thanks to and Senator Grassley last week at your conference.
1: Well, I think one thing both parties agree on is that Chuck Grassley is synonymous with ethanol and biofuels. And I say Chuck Grassley with respect, of course, the, the senior senator from Iowa. He has been championing our industry from our infancy. And at every step of the way, he has been there with a the carrot, with a stick. Um, he has signed any letter, any bill that is pro-biofuels. Biofuel, pro he's been part of it. So it was our pleasure and honor to give him our highest honor, the America's Fuel Award. And it was really nice that he was with us in person in Miami to be able to accept it. And he, in his remarks, uh, offered... No surprise. A lot of good fire and brimstone, and kind of make sure that that everyone in the audience understood that's exactly why we are giving him this honor.
0: I always enjoyed having conversations with uh, uh, former Senator Pat Roberts, who would suggest that he and Senator Grassley would get together and have a glass of ethanol every morning to start their day. <laughs> bless their bless his heart. All right, so now let's think a little bit about the future. Uh The renewable fuel standard and a 10% blend, you're now hopeful for the 15% blend. That has been a major stake in your future. But now we also have next-generation biofuels that are coming along the way. As you mentioned, and we'd like to talk a little bit more about aviation fuel, I think you mentioned in your seminar last week uh, uh land and sea and air, so how much of your future is in this ethanol blending that we have of the existing product? And how much of your future do you believe are in these new products, these next generation?
1: So I think certainly in the short, immediate term, um, our future growth has, go- has got to continue to be in the light-duty vehicles. Uh, that is very important. In addition... There is a lot of excitement and optimism about the opportunities, and I would say the blue skies ahead when we're talking on on the aviation front in terms of ethanol as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, We had great conversation about ethanol to diesel, about ethanol to jet uh, fuel And so a lot of our plants are looking very seriously at the technologies, at the pathways available to them, the time frame, the value stack to be making these investments. But what I heard was a continued tremendous amount of excitement of the the myriad opportunities before us and the technologies out there. Our job at Growth Energy is to make sure from a policy perspective that if there are tax incentives and policies that incentivize that we are able to compete, that we're eligible. We've spent a lot of time working with legislators and policymakers on that front. But, uh, but Jeff, there's a lot of excitement about what we could achieve kind of in the midterm on some of these hard-to-electrify spaces. We've just got to be strong now and continue as a motor fuel to be able to have – the strength to, to do the R and D required to get to the next level.
0: What's possible with the aviation industry?
1: So it's it's in many respects kind of limitless. If you think about it, it's a twenty billion gallon demand, uh, and it can, you know ethanol feedstock into to jet fuels about a two to one ratio, um, not quite. So there's ample opportunity for us to have billions in terms of demand. I mean, the administration has stated a goal. They want 3 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel production by 2030. Uh, And we have already seen several ethanol plants make commitments uh, that that's something that they want to be part of and are confident they're going to be able to deliver against. So a lot of upside in terms of the potential growth demand.
0: So at the same time, as we look at this next generation of biofuels, Now some of the members of the oil industry that have been antagonists to renewable fuel are converting refineries and now going into the renewable fuel business. What story does that spell for Growth Energy and for your membership?
1: Well, yeah, it is interesting and if you look at kind of the amount of interest in renewable diesel right now, and certainly corn oil is a feedstock for renewable diesel, so that's uh, something that we are very excited about as an industry. Uh, And honestly, this is is a net positive thing. The more that we have investment in and attention around uh, renewable fuels, all biofuels, that's going to be, I think, a net positive for ethanol because um, it, it reinforces the importance of our ability to be able to be a solution not only for light-duty vehicles but but for uh, trucking, for maritime, and for aviation as well. So I think this is a good thing. It's going. To certainly, um, we're still kind of interesting dynamics in terms of the marketplace, but you're also then going to have kind of a new set of p- proponents in terms of having a strong renewable fuel standard, which does make for an interesting conversation moving forward.
0: I find it somewhat of a paradox that in Washington, we're struggling with regulations and how they should fulfill existing law, but much of the next generation biofuels are coming from the state level of those states that are looking toward the future and, in essence, mandating the fuel that will be used within their borders. Do you not see that as, some <laughs> as a
1: paradox? Well, I think the states are getting impatient. And so they see if things aren't going to be happening fast enough at the federal level, we're going to have our own clean fuel standard within the state. We're going to have our own E15 standard within the state. So I think we will continue to see more activity at the state level where states, I mean, you look, California, Oregon, Washington have a clean fuel standard. It's being looked at, given a hard look at in the Midwest. Uh, Iowa, we've got a bill introduced for an E15 standard where where Governor Reynolds and the legislature would You know, hopefully offer E15 at every pump throughout the state. So I think this is a good development because one, you're going to see some movement forward at the state level, but two, at some point, It's going to force the conversation, do we need more of a federal solution? Certainly if you look at something like E15. Um, So I think these are good developments, and it's an area where we are increasingly involved as growth energy.
0: Well, Emily Score, you're coming off a tremendous week in Miami with your executive leadership conference and all who have gathered there to be a part of that event No shortage of issues. We want to thank you for taking time on the heels of that meeting to spend with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic. You've been here before. You get the last word today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Um, And I will say there is so much excitement and enthusiasm about the potential. Um, The industry knows that we can contribute as a low-carbon fuel solution. And we know that we can do it. we want to. We are excited about the various avenues of opportunities, and we're ready to get down to work. We're ready to to continue to do the the grunt work that needs to be done on the policy front to lay the groundwork in terms of modeling, make sure that incentives um, are fair and appropriate and have the the best – Technology and the best solution win. Uh, we're we're ready to get to work in terms of commercial development and investment, and the ingenuity and the innovation that, that is such a part of this industry. So, we we are ready to embrace the opportunity and the challenge ahead, and it's exciting.
0: Our thanks to Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Growing Matters. Growing Matters is an industry coalition sharing science-based information about the crucial role neonicotinoids play and how food is produced. Learn more at neonicfacts.org. For
1: AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.